Welcome to the podcast on Sources of the Reign of Robert I and the Anglo-Scottish Wars of Independence, a podcast produced by the Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project The Community of the Realm in Scotland, 1249-1424, History, Law and Charters in a Recreated Kingdom. The project team is made up of historians from the Universities of Edinburgh, Glasgow and King's College London, and is recorded in the King's Online Studio at King's College London. Each week we take one of the important sources from or around the reign of Robert Bruce, King of Scots, from 1306 to 1329, and explain what it is, how it survives, and why it matters. I'm John Rubin Davis, and this week Matthew Hammond, Research Associate at King's College London, will be taking us through the charters of Edward Balliol. So, Matthew... What are the charters of Edward Balliol? We have the texts of some 34 charters and letters in both Latin and French in the name of Edward Balliol as King of Scots. And before we delve more into the charters, it's worth asking who Edward Balliol was, because if you were to look up any standard history of Scotland's kings and queens, you may not come across the name Edward, King of Scots. Edward was the son of John Balliol, who had been King of Scots between 1292 and 1296, before Edward I's invasion in that year. John Balliol had been chosen as the heir to the Kingdom of Scotland after the deaths of King Alexander III and his granddaughter Margaret of Norway. And it was this Balliol kingship against which Robert Bruce was fighting in order to assert his own claim to be the king of Scotland. So Edward Balliol, as the son of John Balliol, carried on this uh, this sort of competing claim to Robert I and the Bruce line. And it's also important to know that close connection between Edward Balliol and the English crown. Even before uh, John Balliol was made king of Scotland, when Edward Balliol was born in the 1280s, it was actually King Edward I who was his godfather, and the young Edward actually grew up in the household of Prince Edward, the future King Edward II, and later in the household of his contemporary John de Warren, Earl of Surrey. So despite the fact that the Balliols had their wealthy estates in Picardy in France, Edward Balliol grew up really in and around the English court, and was eventually given an allowance by the king, which uh, kind of supported him for much of his, his life. The fact that Edward became king of Scots, or uh, acted as king of Scots, is um, perhaps something of a historical fluke, and it's really not certain whether this was due to his own ambition or the ambition of others. Because as a result of uh, Robert Bruce's rule, there were a number of, of men who became known as the disinherited, who had legal claim to lands in Scotland, but lost them after the Battle of Bannockburn, when Robert Bruce declared that their lands would be forfeit to the crown so that they could be distributed to his own loyal supporters. The most prominent of these men among the Scots was... David Strathbogie, uh, Earl of Athol. But the majority of the disinherited were actually Englishmen 
who had managed to inherit various lands and claims in Scotland through marriage. Perhaps the most ambitious of those men was a man named Henry de Beaumont, who claimed the earldom of Buchan in Aberdeenshire through the right of his wife, who was a Cumann, and the Cumann family, who had been earls of Buchan, were prominent supporters of the Balliol claim to kingship. So, it was really under Strathbogie and Henry Beaumont that Edward was persuaded, it seems, to, to push his claim to the Kingdom of Scotland. All of this came to a head after the murder of Roger Mortimer and the rise to personal rule by the young king Edward III, who was not pleased with the treaty that had been agreed with the Scots in 1328, known now as the Treaty of Edinburgh-Northampton. And essentially, Edward III was willing to give his blessing to a group of the disinherited and Edward Balliol, taking a small force to attack Scotland. And that's exactly what they did in the summer of 1332. With about two to 3,000 men, they landed in Fife on the 6th of August, and it was very lucky for them that the person who was actually ruling Scotland in the name of the young David II, Thomas Randolph, Earl of Murray, sometimes called Robert Bruce's right-hand man, had died just three weeks previous, and Donald Earl of Mar had been made the guardian in his, in his absence. So when Balliol landed, he sort of was pushing against an open door and was able to advance on Perth and met Donald Earl of Mar and the Bruce side at Duplin Moor on the 11th of August. They were said to have been betrayed by Strathbogie's supporter, William Murray of Tullibarden, and it was a major loss for the Bruce side with Thomas Randolph Jr., Donald Earl of Mar himself, Robert Bruce's bastard son, and the Earl of Menteith and, and others dying in that battle. With this sort of unexpected major victory under their belts, the Earls of Fife and Strathern came over to the Balliol side. The Earls of Fife and Strathern had traditionally been the most prestigious of the Scottish Earls, but had not received the kind of attention and favor from Robert Bruce that some of the the newer families like the Randolphs and Douglases had benefited from. So with Fife and Strathern on their side, Balliol was able to be crowned and anointed King of Scots at Schoon on the 24th of September, 1332, the Earl of Fife fulfilling his traditional role in the ceremony, and in the place of the Bishop of St. Andrews, who was a Bruce supporter, was the Bishop of Dunkeld, who was a supporter of David Strathbogie, Earl of Athol. So it's for this reason, because he was crowned and anointed King of Scots, that we have included his charters as King of Scots in our study and in the People of Medieval Scotland database, and that we are treating him as any other King of Scots in this period. So Matthew, would, would it be fair to say that Edward Balliol was a usurper? Well, that has certainly been the traditional view. The histories that we have of this period have tended to be very strongly 
in support of the Bruce cause and giving us a narrative which is slanted very much in favor of the Bruce view. If we look at the actual events on the ground, though, it's obvious throughout the whole period of the Wars of Independence that things were more complex than that, that Balliol had a great deal of support from people who were less than happy with Robert's rule. History has certainly classed him as a as a usurper or pretender, but at least at this moment in 1332, uh, many Scots were willing to to go along with the idea of Edward Balliol as their king. To what extent was he recognised as King of Scots outside Scotland? He was very much recognised and supported by Edward III and the English. Uh, however, the French were very much in support of the Bruce claim and would come eventually to the Bruce's aid in the wars that followed because despite this rather quick rise to to power in the summer of 1332, Edward Balliol was actually having to flee back to England by the end of the year. Essentially, the leadership of the Scots with the death of Donald Lamar went to Andrew Murray, who was a very effective military strategist, and all of Balliol's gains were sort of chipped away at, and in December, at a battle at Annan, near the English border, Balliol's forces were scattered, and he's said to have run to Carlisle in his shirt tails. So, let's get to the source. How do these charters survive? Uh, do we have originals? Are they in copies? Tell us about The largest group of them survive in the National Archives in Kew, because a great deal of them do reflect the relationship between Edward Balliol and Edward III. He ultimately relied heavily on Edward III to support him in his claim for the kingship, because after he uh, had to flee to Carlisle, Edward III decided to become personally involved. And one of the earlier documents that we have is of Edward Balliol agreeing to give large parts of southern Scotland to King Edward III. So he was actually ceding all of southern Scotland and a kind of line from Linlithgow to Dumfries to become annexed into the kingdom of England itself. And this shows the extent to which uh, he really needed Edward III to um, bolster his claim to be King of Scots. But this cannot have been a very popular move among uh, many of the, of the Scottish nobles whose support he also hoped to attract. Some of the other charters, though, uh, survive in places that reflect his relationship with some of the disinherited. And this is particularly true of the Percy family. The Percy family has a cartulary in which their charters were copied, and so we have a number of the charters between Edward Balliol and Henry Percy throughout the 1330s through 1350s survive in, as copies in that book. We also have some charters from the Talbot family archive, which went into the Lord Frederick Campbell charter collection of original charters which is now in the British Library. And Richard Talbot was another one of the disinherited. So these are interesting because they show, again, the extent to which Balliol relied on the support of these allies uh, to try and 
essentially assert military support. And these documents tend to have to do with the besieging of Scottish castles, places like the Peel of Loch Maven in Annandale, and Kildrummy Castle in Mar, and the things that he was willing to give these men for the successful capture of these castles. Almost all of the charters are either with King Edward III or lay supporters such as these. There are very few that are for the church. Uh, one exception is a charter that survives in the cartulary of the bishops of Glasgow. And it is a, a moment in 1334 after Edward III has re-established Balliol as King of Scots. This is sort of the high point of Balliol government, if you like, in Scotland. They have parliaments in Perth and in Edinburgh, and Edward Balliol travels to Glasgow after this, and we have a charter there in which he has inspected a charter of his father, John Balliol, as king, which gives money for the lighting of sort of shrines in the cathedral this shows that Edward is actually keen to be seen as governing in some way and as uh, continuing in the legacy of his father and showing some kind of line of continuity in Balliol rulership in that way. Do you think it would be fair to say that what these charters of Edward Balliol tell us is perhaps more important for his relations with other people than for the actual events of his reign. Yes, I think that's partially true. The witnesses of his charters reflect the support that he had from the disinherited. Um, this inc also includes some, some knights based in Scotland, like Sir John Stirling, the Mowbray brothers, uh, Eustace Maxwell of Kerlavrock. So we're able to see a sort of small coterie of knights and nobles around him who were kind of propping up his uh, attempt at rule. We also see him trying to reach out to other power players in Scotland, try to develop relationships. The best case of this is, is an indenture, which is a kind of two-sided agreement with interlocking teeth. And this is with the Lord of the Isles, John of Isla. This is actually the earliest document from the lordship of the Isles that we have. In 1336, it's uh, on its face, the King of Scotland, in this case Edward Balliol, acknowledging or giving a vast swathes of lands across Argyll and the Isles to John of Isla. But these lands include places like Kintyre and Naptale, which were actually part of the Stuart patrimony and their power base based around the Firth of Clyde. And the Stuarts being one of the main supporters of the Bruce side, what Balliol is really trying to do here is encourage John of Isla to attack and take over these Stuart lands. So these charters really are pretty crucial to our understanding of Edward Balliol's reign then. Absolutely. So if our listeners want to look at these charters and know what's in them, is there anywhere they can get hold of them? Or how how well, can they access the information? The first place they can access uh, the information is by going to the People of Medieval Scotland database at www.poms.ac.uk, where there are entries for these 34 documents now available. 
This does not give you the full text of the document, but it gives you a summary and then it tells you about the people who are in the documents and how they're connected to each other. It also tells you where you can find published copies of these. Um, the charters relating to his parliaments can be found on the records of the Parliaments of Scotland website, both in the original and in translation. And we'll put all this information in the podcast description, by the way. The charters also sort of tell how this whole sorry episode kind of comes to an end because they sort of peter out. There's a long lag in time between charters, but even as late as 1347, he's trying to do deals with Henry Percy, saying that he'll give him large swathes of land in Scotland if he'll provide military support. Ultimately, even after King David II, the Bruce King, is captured at the Battle of Neville's Cross in 1346, there's little support for a renewed Balliol takeover. English strategy focuses more on what to do with the imprisoned David II and getting a large ransom for his release. The only sort of flicker of hope for Balliol is I think after the the Scots, with the help of the French, managed to retake Berwick-upon-Tweed in 1355. And this gets a reaction from Edward III, who brings a, a big army up, retakes Berwick, kind of devastates the southeast of Scotland. And it's in that context in Roxburgh in January 1356 when we have the last five or six documents in the collection which are all about Edward resigning all of his rights as king to Edward III, handing over his golden crown, and, and all of this in return for a 2,000-pound annuity from King Edward. So, in a way, Edward ends his life the way he began it, with an annual allowance from the King of England without any real hopes of regaining his place as King of Scots. Well, Dr. Matthew Hammond, thank you very much for telling us all about these little-known sources for a period of Scottish history which is not always well understood. If you've liked this podcast, please rate and review it on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Follow the project on Twitter at COTR2020 and visit our website online at www.cotr.com. Dot ac dot uk